Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host, Robin Hunnicky, here today with Kim Belair. Kim is a fantastic writer, creative, and activist in the space of gaming. And today, what we're going to talk about is what it means to be truly inclusive, how to bring joy to a wide variety of people in your audience, and specifically, how to make changes now that are incremental towards creating a more diverse, inclusive, and safe industry for women Black people, queer folks, people of color, and people from different backgrounds. Thank you so much for listening once again. Really thrilled to bring Kim to you today and can't wait to hear what you have to think about this episode. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Thank you so much, Kim, for being with us today in these crazy and strange times. It's so great to get your perspective. Um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And if you could uh, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into the industry and where you came from. Yeah, for sure. Um, One, it's good to be here. And and two, I think it's always hard when you're trying to figure out what the path into games was. I think it's, for me, it's kind of unusual in that it was very, very easy because I went from the world of marketing and I actually got... um, recruited via LinkedIn to start a job at Ubisoft as a community developer. Wow. And I think, you know, I had often played games. I I played games my entire life. I've always been a writer. I've always written things and been uh, interested in narratives and done little projects on the side. But I had never thought about myself as someone who could be part of the industry. And so when the initial you know, interest was shown. And and I was asked, like, if I wanted to apply for this, the community developer position, I thought, okay, maybe, but I just don't know, you know, is that for me, is that something that I am capable of? Is this an industry that I can get into? I never really seen it as a possibility, which I I I think there are are a lot of reasons for that, but yeah, probably. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of reasons that it was, I was never like, Oh, a person like myself in games, but I joined on, um, I worked in that position for about a year and a half on a couple games, including Watch Dogs, a little bit Assassin's Creed, Black Flag, and then largely Far Cry Four. Oh and wow! Those are big games. Yeah, yeah that's community. That's that's a that's community with a capital C. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting way to start and to kind of dive into. You know, I had previously done a bit of community management, um, but only in branding and marketing, which is a very different field and, and a little less personal. And then getting into this was was really fun. But what community development was about versus community management was that I wasn't necessarily in the forums. That was a lot of community management. For myself, we were creating assets based on the world of the game, expanding the world of the game, um, profiling devs on the team, uh, doing interviews, and essentially bringing the game to life and then handing that off to the community managers who would put it out there. And I happen to do, because it's, it comes 
you know, it's, it's an interest and it comes very naturally to me, I, I lean towards narrative content. And so at one point on Far Cry 4, I had pitched doing this, um, this fake blog, like a travel blog of a journalist who was going into the fictional nation of Karat where the game is set. And she would be, you know, writing about the game's villain. And I kind of pitched that. It ended up going up. And then I kind of talked to the dev team and they were interested in putting some of those elements in the game, you know, just in the form of a couple notes. You can find her home in the game, little hints that she has been there. And That's cool. Yeah, it was, it was really cool and um, very kind. And I ended up, as a result of that, talking to the narrative director on that project who said, would you like to, to just do that maybe in the future? That's so um, awesome. Someone notices that you have a skill. And yeah, it, it, was you. Really, it was really nice. Right? <laughs> you know, yeah, for all, that's, for all that's happening with, I think, you know, the games industry right now, I can say that right around that time, I was lucky enough to have two or three folks who really were advocates for me and for my writing and my narrative work. And they made it a lot easier for me to consider, you know, I, I think deepening my attachment to these projects and, and pursuing writing and narrative full time. That's truly excellent because it's definitely, it's not something that a lot of people can say. And when you can say it, I can also say this early in my career, a couple of people stepped up and really promoted me as a designer and then eventually as a producer and now a CEO and having those allies is so important. Um, when is. you were moving, when you were making that transition, what was it like? Did you have imposter syndrome? Were you anxious about making the leap? You know, wh where were you? Oh, in that? I, I had imposter syndrome for the jump. <laughs> I was already feeling like an imposter, so um, it wasn't too much of a difference. And I'd always, I had always written. I had done a lot of, of writing in, in book form, comic form, stuff like that. So it wasn't too jarring, task wise. But I think it was, you know, it was very intimidating, I think, to realize that I was starting off in a new position where, you know, I wasn't necessarily known for what I can do. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you know, starting out on tiny things. I was working on big AAA titles as my first way in. And I'm grateful for the time that I spent as a community developer to kind of get a sense of, you know, of the community, of, of the audience, and of what people really love about these games so that I at least felt like I understood the heart of what people were looking for and what we can, what we can bring. That's whether, you know, whether that made it in a lot of the time, I don't know, but it was, <laughs> the effort was certainly there. So then you're in this position where you've moved from sort of a more of a marketing or social facing role into writing. Um, how was it for you moving into that position in terms of like, did you, did you find that the day-to-day -day was what you expected? Was it totally unexpected? Like, did you have people that you sort of reached out to and talked to about like, hey, like what does a game writer do? Because I think a lot of people imagine that a game writer sits in a room and then just like comes up with these great ideas. And like, you are already coming at it from a, coming at it from a community perspective, like where, where were you in that transition and what, and what kind of, what kind of steps did you take to, to, to make, to make the jump? I think for myself, I, I sought out allies quickly and I was lucky enough to kind of have, you know, a few people who I could at least talk to to say, what is this process like here? I think that's what at the beginning of my time as a writer, I was thinking about a lot. 
which was how do I become part of this team and, and share my voice for this project while also understanding that, you know, I am a very small part of a very big thing. And yeah. I think that I was, I was lucky enough to know a lot of writers. So I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I had fallen into or been sold any false dreams. I think a lot of times, you know, as you, as you say, you have this, a lot of folks have this idea that, oh, if I can be a game writer, I'm going to determine what the game is about. I'm going to be able to decide what stories we tell, who the characters are. And it's so much more of a collaborative process that for, you know, 90% of the time when I was working on those projects, I would come onto a team that already very much knew, here's what the story beats are. Here's where we're going with this. I can add some flair to quests, to missions, and, you know, elements to the story. But largely at the time, it was just come in, understand the part that you're making and do it as well as you can. You know, it's interesting because I think like recently I was playing Animal Crossing and sort of discussing it with a few friends of mine who are obsessed with it. And we were talking about the massive amount of dialogue that is in the system for that game and yeah. how many different takes there are on characters and like the in-jokes and the the constant feeling that you are actually interacting with a character being this like really, really difficult and juicy problem for a staff writer because it's like you have to... You have to exercise creativity, but within these really specific bounds, even if that just, for example, just writing about the museum and the different things that got entered into the museum. Like if you're responsible for writing um, about the fossils or the bugs and like thinking about that challenge, like what, what, what did you find to be the sort of like shape of the challenge for writing for a large AAA game like that? Was it that you were trying to sort of work content into a voice or was it trying to create a sort of holistic picture with other writers? Like tell us a little bit of, about that because we don't necessarily interview a lot of writers on the podcast. So I think that with um, a writing team of that size, I know that on the first game that I onboarded, I just think after doing a little bit on Far Cry 4, it was Assassin's Creed Syndicate. And I think in the total credits, there's something like 14 writers. <laughs> wow. And so for me, the onboarding process is about playing as much of the, the build as I can, looking at the guiding voice for the game, which is established by many different people. So I might look at, you know, I think of it as a Venn diagram. It's everyone has their own circle and you try to try to aim for the places where they intersect to nail the voice of the characters, of the world, of the game. That's cool. And you know, as much as you can, you can add your own voice to that. You can add little Easter eggs, you can add bits of flair. And I think that makes the game shine, but you also have to remember that this isn't entirely yours and you have to honor all of the other voices on the team as well. And I think that's where it was really good to have people that I respected working alongside me, people who were willing to you know, guide me with, especially the tools. I think in the first two weeks, I deleted several parts of someone else's writing that I did not mean to do because I screwed around with the engine by accident. Um, so that's that's a, that's where I, I needed a lot of support. But yeah, in terms of finding the voice of the project, that's something that I think is is a is a skill that I hopefully have, and I, I think that it takes it takes just being 
empathetic and I think having a certain humility about the work that you do, knowing that you're capable of doing it, but that you have to work as a team. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So you're you're inside the organization, and as we all know um, through recent uh, communications about Ubisoft's culture in general, um, it was probably not the most healthy place. Um, did you decide to leave at a specific point? Like, were you hungry for uh, more responsibility and wanting to start your own thing? Like, what ended up kind of creating the transition point for you uh, to move off onto your own and create Sweet Baby? So for myself, I think that I was reaching a point, and I and I barely knew at the time that I was reaching this point, but I was I was starting to burn out a bit. I think that as much as I had positive experiences, you know, a lot of the time, I didn't realize how many negative experiences I was having, you know, that were that, that felt small, whether they're microaggressions or just small systemic things that I I, I take as normal. And I think that for myself, I started to feel like I just wanted the possibility of doing more. And I didn't feel like I had that. And I, and I don't think that it was at the time something that I, I consciously thought, but it's hard when you don't see advancement for yourself in a place. And when you start to feel like maybe I'm arrogant to think that I should do more, maybe I'm, maybe I shouldn't be thinking that I can be better than this. You know, it's, it's, it's that mm, weird in, yeah. internalized stuff that you go like, Oh, I guess this is all I'm going to do. And, you know, I was working again with great teams, but I just started feeling like I want to, to try more projects to see what it's like working on other stuff. And so in February, 2018, uh, February, 2018, I left and thought, okay, I'm going to work on, a number of different projects as a contractor and see how it feels and probably eventually land somewhere. So yeah, so this this idea of fatigue, I think it's a really important thing to discuss because it, it is really endemic, I think, to larger organizations that have large franchises. Uh, when I first started working on The Sims, it was the same thing. Like I was so excited to be included in the creative community and to be able to design objects for my favorite game and to have all these wonderful people in my midst who had been working on the franchise for years. But then over time, as as the as the sort of day to day grind of like creating expansion packs and like trying to support the main game and like all these things started happening, I myself also felt like, wow, is this is this it? Like, am I only ever going to design in the Sims universe? Am I ever going to be able to make something that isn't about you know this world space? Um, and it took me about four years as well, I think, to really like just get to the point where I was itching to try something new. Yeah. Um, and that at that time, it was really like, okay, move into indie games because indie games are a big deal. And so I just, you know, stepped off the, the AAA boat and stepped into the indie boat. When you were getting ready to leave in 2018, we were in this really different time, right? Like there was lots and lots of options. There are many, many, many independent games that were getting made, blowing up on Steam. People's companies are getting bought. Like, um, what did you step into? Because that's like a really, really exciting time uh, and so different than where we are now. It's almost, it almost feels like whiplash to think about it but tell me a little bit about like what those first like say six months to a year was like for you were you just like fending off offers were you were you were you thinking about working on lots of different scales of projects like what did that look like so for myself I really thought now I can work on as many things as possible <laughs> I think when you know when you're in such a big because Ubisoft is so big and I was in the Montreal office which is the largest st studios in several buildings a bit like big and 
there's this feeling, I think, when you have a company that's that big that you're like, oh, this is the whole world. You know, like you don't feel like there's anything outside of it. This is a community. This is like, okay, I understand that my options to make games are this project within this company or this project within this company. So I think when I first left, I was like, I'm ready for anything. <laughs> I'll take, like, if someone wants to call me, let's do it. I'll write that. <laughs> I'll narrative design this. Let's go. And so in the first, I think, year, I think I worked on probably three or four different projects. And it was just to kind of get a sense of the industry. And that was actually, I say in the first year, it was, it was the first couple of months because not too long after I left, probably, you know, three or four months in, I was brought in by a company I won't name to work on an Afrofuturist project that they were planning. And this was, it's has since been canceled, but it was a very large Afrofuturist influenced project. Oh, that's so too bad. <laughs> well, well, hold on. Okay. It's, uh, so they brought me in and... <laughs> They said, hey, we're doing this Afrofuturist thing. We'd love to have you consult on it and maybe you know handle some of the writing. I said, perfect. I can definitely consult. Um, who's your writing team? And they showed me and it was three white guys. No. And I thought, actually, I didn't think. I said, oh, no, I don't think that's the team that you should have in yeah. order to tell this story. I mean, they can be part of the team, but it seems that you should probably have a largely black writing team, you know, <laughs> working on this. And their answer was, yeah, we tried to find black writers, but couldn't do it. And there were, you know, the ones we did find were too junior, didn't have enough experience. What? Yeah. And, what? I, what and about I said, what about, what about? Oh, black this was two years ago. This Black Panther, I believe, came out in that same year. Like, I do not believe for a second that you can't do this, but they were insistent. And I said, okay, well, it seems like given the amount of money and power that this company has, you could probably find some folks to train to do this. And even if they don't have the experience, like, you're set up to provide that kind of training. And the answer was, oh, no, we don't have time. So what I proposed was how about I know black writers. So how about if you can't train them, how about I hire them under, you know, my own contract as, as subcontractors, and then they come on board to the team, they get credit and pay. You don't have to handle the training. I'll take care of that. And then at the end of the day, everybody gets a credit. Everyone has been involved. What a super idea. And well, that was, I, I thought so. And, you know, we, we kind of bandied it about and eventually the project got canceled. So it never became a thing, but I went to my best friend, Ari, and I kind of told her, we'd, we'd been talking about maybe doing a little side game project. And so we'd registered um, to, we, we got all the, the documentation to start a company. And I kind of said like, I think we could do that. I think we could, try to actually diversify writing teams, writers' rooms, narrative, and maybe more if what we do is act as a company. And so she and I founded Sweet Baby with that as kind of our secondary goal. Our first goal being, you know, we're writers and narrative designers. We want to make games. We want to work on as many projects as we can and the things that we enjoy, things that we're passionate about. That's number one. But as a 
as a secondary that is now, I think, almost an equal goal in that we want to be able to actually provide meaningful representation in the industry and work a little bit differently. You know, it's so I want to ask you about this as someone who also founded a company with this exact goal in mind. And for me, it was 2012. After finishing Journey, Martin and I sort of sat down and said, like, what, what could we do now that we've accomplished basically all of our goals? And we thought, well, let's make a safe space where people can be themselves at work. And then we can create a lot of training opportunities for diverse and young people who then can either stay with us and create games internally or move on and exactly. make their you know, like let's be a launch pad um, and become a phenomena inside the industry that creates more diversity and engine for diversity and engine for creativity. Um, I have had people sort of directly say to me, like, that seems nice, but you'll never make money that way. You know, you'll never be successful that way. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a kind of, <laughs> I've heard that. that. Yeah. Like, I mean, did you, did you get pushback? Were you encouraged? Like how, how in that moment, did you feel like, well, at best case, we'll just be the two of us. Or did you really think that you could dream so big as to have like three full teams of writers and like 13, 12, 13 contractors? Like I that's a think, huge success, right? I think at the time for me, what I think I've, I've, I'll, I'll credit myself with at least being good at scale and scope. So at the beginning, I definitely thought we'll keep it small and just see how it works. You know, um, we, I didn't encounter a lot of pushback. It wasn't like anyone said, oh, you shouldn't do this. I hate representation. But I think there was a feeling very much, and I still encounter sometimes where there's this idea that if you have a focus on representation, you can't also focus on quality or on games. Yeah. You know, it's like, I've I've been joking lately that I feel as though in the past few weeks, as so much happens across this industry, you know, revealing predators and abusive systems, I feel as though I spend a lot of time lately working in games rather than on games. But yeah. that has not necessarily been true. It's a feeling that I have, but ultimately the bulk of my time is spent working on games. I just happen to do that with a team of people and with contractors and you know colleagues and coworkers who really care about this stuff. Yeah. So this idea that like that it's um, that it's a limitation, I think, is something that we really need to confront. You actually recently wrote about this in GamesIndustry.biz, right? Like we need a movement, not a moment. Like we need yeah. to change the way we're talking about this. Um, I think so much of what defines commercial games investment, let's say, and publishing is this limited perspective on what success can be and what the market space is and like a segmentation that really underprivileges or almost makes invisible the successes that are diverse because it it compares an effort like yours to the scale of something like in Ubisoft. Um, Right now, in this moment, though, we can see that, like, clearly a very large company with a difficult history um, where, for the most part, it's run by a family um, can have massive metastatic problems with sexism, racism, and all kinds of other discrimination. And a small company that's founded on, on these principles can have li virtually none, but at the same time, 
you know, the burden of doing this work can fall on people like yourself, myself, and other advocates in this industry for people that are coming up through the system. Um, what do you think we can do to sort of to decouple the notion of like financial success and um, and scale from this really important work that we need to do to create more opportunities for people in the space? I think for me, um, so I did a talk at GDC in 2019 and it was called uh, Representation as Innovation. And the gist of it was that I feel as though as in the games industry, we put this huge emphasis on how we can innovate. We're always looking at, okay, we can have next-gen graphics, we can have a new platform, we can have a new mechanic or new systems that we can create. But when it comes to narrative and story and bringing in characters, themes, cultures that are new, we don't put it on the same scale. We just go like, no, no, that's just diversity or something. But we don't say, wait a second, this is innovation. This is a kind of story that we've never told before. This is a kind of perspective that we've never had before. By diversifying our team, we are innovating in this space. And I think that we need to think of it like that because at that point, then we can start talking about what we're actually making. I think a lot of people are concerned or, or believe that you know, if you focus on diversity, that is your entire job because they see it as aside from the development process. Yeah. But for myself, and, and I think what's allowed us to be you know, relatively successful in what we're doing is that what we are aiming to do is give, like create diverse teams in the work that we do. So it's not, you know, I'm not necessarily going to just go and talk to someone and say, hey, diversity is great. I want to say like, this is what diversity can do for your project. This is what new perspectives and new ideas, you know, can do to make your project stand out. This is why design has to be, has to consider all of these things, has to consider, consider representation, has to consider diversity, has to consider different viewpoints. All of these things are tied together and diversity is not aside from the work that we do, it is the work that we do. You know, it's really interesting. I've been reading Carson McCullers' uh, books recently, short stories and writing. She was, you know, a writer in the Deep South. And her early 20s, she wrote um, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and The Battle of the Sad Cafe and a bunch of other uh, really interesting stories that focus on the role of race and the interactions between white people, black people, and then the sort of the, the class divide and specifically look, look a lot at... Um, sort of the the emergence of Marxism and the, the awareness that was emerging, you know, at the turn of the century in the United States, that there was a really big problem uh, with wealth disparity and essentially an entire class of people, especially in the South, both white and black, that were being oppressed by by overlords that controlled the majority of the businesses that they that they engaged in, including, you know, the mill industries and uh, the railroad industries and so forth. And at 26, I feel like 26, 28, she was writing these really intense portraits of people on both sides. And what I keep wondering is, like, why haven't we seen this kind of writing in games? Like, is it just that we haven't cared about it? Is it that we haven't attracted the right people? And I think this is like something that it comes up a lot, like even recently with, you know, The Last of Us, this idea that you have this, you know, lesbian character who's, you know, who's who's engaging in these particular solutions to problems that are super violent and that are maybe not necessarily in line with what people think of as being representative of a, of a nuanced approach. Like, 
what what do you think we can do to sort of continue to expand the um, the capability of people that are currently in the industry as well as people that are coming in to really address these issues in ways that are that are compelling and nuanced? Yeah, I think that that's where we. I think that yeah, we need to bring the discussion. I think to that point, I think it's it's, it's not there yet, and I'd like it to be. What can we do? Do we do we do we sort of do we create a group, let's say, of all games writers, um, you know, and put them I mean, maybe make a giant Facebook group that has like two hundred and fifty thousand developers in it or something? I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. I was going like, to say I think recently we've seen that we should not create giant Facebook groups of developers for any reason. <laughs> but this is really like this is what's so frustrating, I think, for for women and 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 queer folks and people of color my age who've been in the industry for a long time is that your piece was really on point that like we've seen this cycle since 2015, you know, since 2005, like there have been a series of of events that have occurred in games that really show that we have this weakness. And yet there's sort of this like bizarre invisibility, like it comes up and everyone writes about it and gets upset about it. And then it disappears. Like, um, you know, I, I just keep wondering, like, what can we do to educate ourselves? Like, you know, can we just make it standard practice to read how to be an anti-racist or to read bell hooks, you know, like, is there a way that we can get everyone in the industry on the same page? I guess. I think that, you know, for me, the idea of the industry being on the same page is I think, first of all, yeah, education is super important. And I do wish that people would engage with, you know, readings on these topics and on these themes the same way that they would, again, read something about a new piece of tech or a new way to design a game. But beyond that, I think that we need to start looking at the systems and the hierarchies that we've built and start questioning why are they such a hotbed for problems? Why are we okay with the fact that so many of these companies and these, these big companies have these same problems? You know, that's when we look at Ubisoft, I think they're emblematic of the problem. And so we look at them, we, we really, you know, tear them apart in the press. But I think my fear is that we become myopic. And we'll go, oh, this is a Ubisoft problem. Yeah. But the reality is it's industry-wide, right? It's all of, and I'm sure that more and more stories will come out from a variety of companies as we go forward. This isn't the last time we're going to have one of these moments of reckoning. And that to me is why we need to have a movement that thinks, okay, what is a different way to run a company? How can we look at games that have stakeholders but how, and, and, and create them ethically and with compassion and empathy how can we make it so that we never have a situation where one very predatory person is the gatekeeper for teams that may well be diverse why is that okay you know i think if we start examining these systems that's where we'll we'll start to find questions that we don't have answers to because if i ask anyone outside of you know, the games industry and of a lot of forms of entertainment. And I said, okay, so we have a team of, let's say 50 to, to 200 people working on this project. And everything that we do feeds through this one guy. And by the way, he's extremely sexist. Yeah. And if I said that to them, they'd say, well, that sounds like a bad system. 
And it is. It's a ludicrous it's <laughs> yeah. It sounds bad because it's toxic. Yeah. It's really, really difficult to, you know, explain that to someone who's not in it. And that to me shows how difficult it is for people who have to work inside it. You know, if I'm working for a company where that's the case, and this has been told to me for many years, like this is normal, this is just how it's done, then I lose my ability to parse what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, you're being groomed essentially by the idea that this is essentially like, okay, well, we're successful because of this one person. And, you know, sure, they have their limitations or their issues, but really look at all the success we've had, you know, and, and, oh, exactly. and look at the credit instead of actually the, the real math, which is think of all of the incredible ideas and really groundbreaking innovations that could have been proposed that were squashed because the person didn't feel safe even being in the same room with this person. Oh, exactly. And even so the way I think of it is like the way that we're building a lot of teams is that let's say you're a small team and you have like five people on it who are diverse and are having great ideas. Everyone gets along. Everyone's doing really, really well. And they have a a demo to present to somebody. So now we say, okay, who's going to present it? And we go, well, the person we're presenting to, uh, I think he'd be most comfortable if it was the white yeah. man on the team presenting. Yeah. So now the white man on the team, whether or not he's you know a good or bad person, he goes up and he goes, okay, it's my responsibility to present this. Here are the five ideas that we have for this project. And now the you know the gatekeeper looks to him and says, wow, you're a genius. Those are great ideas. And instantly. We've erased the work of five different people, and this guy is now going to get another big job next time. You know, I've, I've had this conversation with so many women in my position who are, you know, the heads of game companies, you know, doing work where we're pitching games to publishers and trying to get funded and stuff. And I've also had this conversation with several of my male colleagues who are in sort of the publishing loop. And... As I get more senior and start mentoring teams and looking at pitches, I think the other really sad fact is that just due to systemic privilege, smaller teams of, you know, specifically privileged white people, often men, um, have more leeway and more time to develop a demo that's really strong and and to come to the process already with a winner. And not only because they have time and energy to make that thing on their own, on the side, um, if they have, you know, can take a loan from a family member or something like this, but also that um, that they they are squarely aiming at their own demographic in many cases. And that also has the double, the double appeal of being like, not only are you a genius who did all this work on your own, which means I can totally support you, but also, wow, like your car game, that's also a soccer game is going to be a huge hit. (laughs) Or your shark game that's like, you know, GTA with a shark is so perfect for our audience. And it's like a non- it's just like a, it's like a no brainer for this person to go, yeah, this guy's got it, right? Where then when you see the pitches from diverse teams, from women who are trying to aim at a different marketplace, a lot of times what you hear in the ether around that pitch is essentially, mm, you know, we're really risk averse. We don't yeah. really know the marketplace. Like, uh, you know, I, I know that women buy games like this, but I've never worked on one. It makes me uncomfortable. Like there's this secondary 
conversation that happens around how unfamiliar it is um, that is directly related to that person's level of expertise experience with this other stuff. And so like, you know, how do you bridge that gap and sort of bring people along without a larger systemic conversation? I just don't think that you can. I think at this point, you kind of have to confront that directly. And that's a very difficult problem to unravel at that level, right? Yeah. And I think, well, I think also there's this idea that if you create something for someone who is not, you know, your core demographic, which at this point we, we are still hanging on to this idea that it's huge and overwhelming, that it's just, you know, straight cis white men. We have this fairly, I think, outdated idea that that's everyone who plays games that we still, and we still keep relying on it. And then when someone says, Hey, what if we did something for, you know, this group of people, they go like, ah, I don't know if that's, I don't think it's going to sell. So we're just not going to do it. And I really, I find it difficult because you have to, you end up just trying to put, as you, as you kind of mentioned with something like the last of us, you end up having to find your representation in structures that aren't necessarily representative of themselves. So you might say, okay, we're going to build this kind of game that has its problems or is, you know, maybe let, let, let's say necessarily violent or let's say, you know, disrespectful to a certain group of people. And we say, okay, well, we're going to have a female character in it. And that a lot of the time is, is the best that we can do. But I think it would be a lot nicer. Yeah. If we could have those conversations that say, why don't you take a risk on something new instead of taking a risk on the same kind of person you always do? Why is it that we are you know, shown these largely white, largely male creative directors and go, these guys know exactly what games are. They've known the past of games. They know the present of games. They're visionaries. They're geniuses. We're going to venerate them and say how great they are. And no matter how many failures they have, it's like, we'll find someone else to blame for that failure. Yeah, this idea of failing up, I think, is actually a really, also a really toxic one that that a lot of women on the back channel have conversations about, you know, like, oh, that guy, like, he was here, and then he did this horrible stuff, and then he moved out, and oh, and yeah. then he ended up someplace else. And, you know, we have these long trajectories, these winding trajectories of these guys who have made, you know, maybe made a game early in their career that was pretty good. They were on a huge team, and then they keep getting invested in, but they're oh, subsequent. Yeah. They're never as big, and yet there's this like almost this like bizarre emperor's new clothes thing that happens, right? Where you're like, oh, you know. Whereas, whereas when you look at the, you know the many many games say that like Nintendo has made um, with incredibly diverse teams in many cases um, and extremely humble people, there's almost no veneration. There's no there's no celebration of those people. Partly because the culture is one of collaboration, and I wonder sometimes too if that's if that's not also an issue, you know, that we're not really looking at the huge successes in handheld and mobile gaming or in casual gaming, quote unquote, um, and venerating those people because we have this other system that just is allergic to it. Oh, yeah. It's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't create rock stars the same way. And then sometimes when it does, we find that there are, when we are, you know, mirroring triple in indie, when we are mirroring triple A, we find that there are the same problems. We, tr we still have indie studios where, the same stuff that's happening at bigger companies like the predatory abusive stuff happens on a small level. And when you look at it, it's because of the same problem. It's because you have someone with a tremendous ego and a very small amount of empathy who knows how to use a system to their advantage. And so I think like the, you know, I, I like the idea of, of talking about teams. I like the idea of saying, 
you know, for myself, I like to say something is by sweet baby. I like to say something yeah. is, you know, we did this together and I'm happy, you know, also to talk about my own work when, if I am working through sweet baby and I lead a project or I have a different role from somebody else, I'm happy to say like, yeah, I did that. That's great. And to champion that aspect of it. But, you know, I'm a lot happier to say, this is the responsibility of everyone. And we're all just doing our jobs. I think that's actually another thing is that when we look at, when we create rock stars in the industry, when we create these people who, you know, are allowed to do whatever they want because they're geniuses, because they're weird, because they're like, you know, visionaries, what we're doing is making it out to be anything, something else that's not just a job. If we create like, oh, these people are who you want to be. They're living the dream. They are something more than just developers. They are it's stars. A, it's a mythology. Actually, even just the, the even just the moniker rock star, right? Like when you look at the way that women musicians are treated in in the music industry for years and years and years, it's been every festival is headlined by a dude. There's like maybe one female act, you know, in the top three or four billing. Um, you know, that oh, it's yeah. taken, it's taken like, you know, t- 10 years for Beyonce to headline Coachella. Like there, yeah. there's this idea, even in that culture, that's endemic to it itself, that it's like guys in their garage <laughs> rocking out because they can, and then yeah. they become famous. And then it's just like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And that, that they get to live this like lifestyle of abandon. Um, oh, yeah. and, if, and if women are, you know, if they aim towards that if they seem like quote unquote a mess right then that's like oh she's gross and terrible or even like if you look at Beyonce it's like how much time do we have to spend before people will stop debating whether she's like powerful or good or enough you know like there's this the way that we speak about so many male rock stars in that industry is like wow these people are geniuses like they're art if you don't like them you're wrong yeah if you don't like it yeah whereas like the amount of albums that like a lot of these women can make is huge. And the songs that they have tons of singles, they can be around for years and years and years, but they still get treated as though they're going to be judged on everything they do right now. Well, and then there's also this idea that like at some point they age out, they're no longer beautiful, like actresses as well. We've seen these movements. And I think that this, there's sort of this interesting question of like, okay, is it possible to center women and people of color, queer folks, Native Americans, you know, um, people that have emigrated to the United States? Like, is it possible to center them in this way? And then there's this sort of response to that, which is like, well, maybe let's decenter the ego. Let's create the collaborative. And I think that one of the more healthy things that you can do in a collaborative organization is really build this sense of shared responsibility and shared leadership and shared creativity. But it is really anathema to the to the method that is used to rubber stamp yes or no in the financing and publishing spheres. And so I think this is really a question, you know, for publishers and for people that are in investments um, funds and uh, and looking at doing bootstrapping investment is how do they get past that bias? You know, yeah, that's that's something that I I find so yes, yeah, it's, it's so challenging to even you know discuss because it's so deep and systemic, and s- there are so many layers to why these things are happening. You know, and there are a lot of people I think who don't understand how to adapt to these changes. They don't understand how to adapt to a new kind of thinking. Um, They see like, oh, if we bring in someone else, 
they're going to take away my vision in some way. But I think that, you know, if we are going to move forward with this, we have to be collaborative. We have to be, be willing to trust that someone else might know better. So even if you're saying, you know, I don't fully get this. This is not, you know, a direction that I would have taken with it. Try to see the value in it and try to see that maybe they're right. If you know, it doesn't it's look like what you're used to, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because like if you look at something like a Roblox or a Minecraft, which is creating these entire differently sort of differently enabled communities of people to create their own games. I think people are starting to finally cotton on to the idea that like this is actually something that is going to transform the industry. But you can also even look at more traditional industries like marketing, for example, Cindy Gallup. Um, who is like, you know, famous for founding Make Love Not Porn, but also is like a really experienced marketer has been in, in marketing and, and the internet for years and years and years. She gave a talk a year ago now, I think, uh, you know, sort of talking about what the new reality is. Um, it's called the future for white men in advertising, right? And what she mm -hmm. sort of says is like, well, welcome to the world where you can make jokes about sex at work and you can be more yourself. You can cry. You can, you can, you can be honest about who you are because you don't have to be in this toxic masculine role anymore. But in order to get that, you have to acknowledge that, you know, Asian women are a real thing and black women are a real yeah. thing. You have, to, you have to understand that being queer is a real thing. If you just embrace that, then suddenly your job becomes more fulfilling. You, you can bring your full personality to work. You don't have to be in this like suit and tie mentality. And on top of that, you'll make more money. Like it's all good, right? There's oh, nothing yeah. bad I, about it, right? I love that because there's so many, there's so many times that, you know, you try to say, Hey, this is what you're saying is not appropriate or what you're saying is, is bad. And they go like, Oh, I can't believe I'm being censored in this environment. I can't believe I can't say these things. I can't believe I can't make a joke. And it's like, it's not what that, it's not what this is about. It, you could be free to do that if things were equal. You know, if I, if, if you want to make a joke about sex, I had best be in an environment where I feel like I can protect myself, where I can decide to opt out of this joke, where I can say, Hey, that hurts, that hurts my feelings. And you're not going to freak out about it. Yeah, you, you know, can like, say it has to be. <laughs> yeah, it has. It has to, and I have to be able to say like, "Oh, this we are on equal footing right now," and I feel respected for the person that I am. You know, it's this is like we're not Puritans. You know. Yeah. The yikes takes that you hear where you where you don't feel comfortable stepping out and going, "That's a yikes take." Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. But you know, I don't know why you're talking like your dad, but you need to stop saying stuff like that. This yeah, is like, there's so many times that I've encountered, like, you know, things that um, are so inappropriate at work. And if I say something about it, I become the bad guy. And that is the issue, is that if you want to have freedom to say these things, you can't do it in an environment where I don't have freedom to say what I want to say. Well, and so this is, I think, really, this is the struggle that I think games can really address in some kind of creative way. We we can start to build systems that really do interrogate this perspective. I think that there's a lot of room in even just like the most straightforward AAA shooter to talk about this question of equal opportunity, equal voice, equal perspective. It's not that hard to fictionalize no. this and turn it into a really juicy problem between several characters, you know, looking at the same problem from different perspectives. Like, you know, um, when you think about like 
Rochamon or like one of these, like, you know, there are lots of things that people have already made that try to address this quality of like the fact that human narrative comes from different perspectives and has nuance and that that's what is both the rub and also the genius of being a human person is that, Oh, absolutely. Right. So like, do you feel like there's room now for us to start to really interrogate these questions, even in, like you said, even as just like an incremental innovation inside there's, there's been room and that's what's so frustrating. I think that right now we have this kind of like temper because it's, this moment that we're in right now where people are really starting to reevaluate things, you know, we have pandemic that's happened that has showcased a ton of inequality across the world, right? And in our governments and our systems, we have Black Lives Matter that has, you know, raised awareness to people who were not previously aware of the vast inequalities socially that we, and, you know, I guess wealth-wise that we have yeah. across the nation and beyond. And I think that, you know, this moment in games, I think is a result of both those things. I think that when studios stood up and said, hey, we care about Black Lives Matter all of a sudden, right? Like studios that you know have not been diverse, you know have not put any work into this, suddenly go, hey, we believe in diversity, we're, work, we're great and we're inclusive, we're go- donating money. And I think it kind of opened a door um, for people to say, hey, wait a second, no, you're not practicing what you preach. And, you know, the secondary part of the pandemic going, oh, I don't have to work in the office with someone who's abusive. So I think we have the opportunity as far as that conversation right now to start at least really saying, how can we do this better? And I would, I, ho- I would hope that we can, that we can use it to be quick and to take action now. Because I think the, the the worry that I have as we you know discuss things like this is that we keep asking when are we ready for that conversation or we keep asking like what can we what can we do in the future what commitments can we make you know for two three four years from now and that's that's great like I think we have to commit to things but a lot of the time that just means you know yeah we'll 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 do something in a couple of years right now we have all these games to make we have all these things to do so we can't really you know do anything about it but we'll get there eventually. Yeah. And I think what we need to do right now is start saying, no, 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 no. Right now, what can we do to help? You know, I've, I've, I've seen too many of these moments slip past us. And, I, and I'm hoping this, this one's a little bit different as a result of all those external factors. But, you know, I, I want to start for, for myself. One of the things that I keep thinking about is like, I wish we could see the games that we make as group projects rather than as factories. Yeah. You know, I think we look at it and we go, we're going to run this like a factory. There's going to be like someone on the floor, then he's going to report to somebody else. And then the team's just going to build their own little parts of it. But, you know, as much as we can, and I'm aware that, you know, some teams are 400 people, but as much as we can, let's try to say, hey, we're all making this together. We are all in the same boat. We have managers, but they don't necessarily have more power and and kind of, yeah, start thinking of, of this as a group effort towards something that we all have to like. You know, there's an interesting model that we've sort of employed at Phenomena that I think is also, it's just in general, it, it asks the question, uh, why why do companies in general have this uh, sort of anti-developmental approach where someone gets promoted and then suddenly they're the expert 
Um, I think if you look at it at the most broad level culturally, you can think of it as the difference between a broadcast model, which is very ancient and comes from, you know, thousands of years of human culture that were focused on essentially the dissemination of quote unquote truth from a single source, whether that's been, you know, from a king or a priest to a president or a university like, say, Harvard, you know, that there's this idea of truth that gets disseminated down from single or like small group of individuals to the masses and that your your ability to be um, correct, to be intelligent, to be validated, um, to receive praise is directly related to your ability to regurgitate that narrative, right? That's one way. And then the other way is the network model, which says, okay, there's a lot of co-arising phenomena, for example, on a game, when you're making something new, um, if you're building a new system, which is what, you know, what we do completely is we are always building new games. um, You have to constantly look at the co-arising phenomena of how the art, the design, the writing, the music, um, the, the, the gameplay feel, how they all come together to create an experience and whether or not that experience is fun. It's incredibly oriented towards risk because you're trying to find new ways to play and new ways to engage with content. But there is an approach that's essentially decentralizing, totally focused on the idea that co-arising phenomena will happen in individual parts of the project and that our goal as a team is to report in on, oh my gosh, something good happened or Ugh, something is really sucking down the game and it's not good right now. <laughs> and that we're, we're really more engaged in the process of almost like gardening or like coaxing this project into reality. And we're trying to prune off the parts that seem like they're getting sick and like sucking water and energy down from the main trunk of the, of the tree or the flower and really trying to build something more sustainable and holistic based on what it seems to respond to in the soil of everyone's creativity, right? And I think that mm-hmm. thinking about a project that way is very sort of, it's the antithesis of the machine model or the or the assembly line model of, okay, this works, we're going to slightly update the model, and then we're going to add like two new features, like, and then we're going to ship it, like thinking about it yeah. more like a car, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think also, you know, what the what a more holistic approach does is also create a space for you to say, well, I'm done work for the day and I don't, or I'm coming into work and I'm not anticipating the judgment of a single person. I'm not thinking, okay, I have to navigate how, what do I wear? What do I say to one person to make them think that my work is good? Because if you, you know, if you get on the wrong side of a person who holds power, that's it for you. You know, like that's, that's, I think that's, that's, it. And, yeah. that's so crucial. Like it's so crucial to communicate that specific feeling of dread that you get when you're going into work for a boss. Like I had a boss a while back that was just really difficult. And at one point they said to me, you know, your problem is, is that you're pretty and you're smart and it's intimidating to the senior staff. And it's like, well, okay, which one of those things should I not do? Yeah. And it's like, okay, in that case, I can, I'm no longer working. Like that's, yeah, my daughter's no longer work. And, yeah, and that's, that's what kills me. As I think yeah. that like what this does is that I now have to navigate such a complicated system in addition to the work that I do. So I have to already, if I am a marginalized person, I have to come in there and I have to do better work than they expect from me. You know, I have to like, I have to really work extra hard to be seen as valid from the jump. And then I have to also, you know, make sure that my very existence is not a 
offensive to them. Yeah. I have to make sure, I have to keep thinking like, am I saying this wrong? If I say something in a meeting, in a story meeting about a character who is black, are they going to look at me and say, oh, well, of course you want to say that. Does that yeah. become, you know, is it no longer objective of me to speak of, of women in games? Is it no longer objective of me to speak of people of color in games? And there's this like subjectivity that's, that's implied in everything that I do. Whereas, you know, the rest of the people in that meeting might be considered objective for having the same views because it doesn't directly affect them. And so when you say like, you know, for yourself, if someone comes in and goes like, well, you're, you're competent and you're pretty. So yikes. And it's like, what? So it's like, sorry, I, like, is there something that I can do to remedy that? And, you know, it also works in the sense that if you are someone who people go, oh, I think you're cute and I'd like to work with you. You're yes, going to work on that project. And the entire time you're going, am I good at this? Have I been asked to do it because I am cute or because I'm good? And even if the answer, like you might be doing the best work of your or their lives, but <laughs> they've already planted this doubt that you have to contend with just to do your job. You have to always be feeling like there's something else that you have to manage. You don't get to just come in and go, hey, I'm going to work on this project. Have a great, like, I'm going to have a great day and that's going to be it, which is what so many developers who aren't from, you know, these groups get to do. They get to just work in games. This idea of the, the privilege of being able to just focus on work, I think is something that there really is a moment happening now that you can sort of say, like, you know, for myself as a queer person, like the assumption that was always that I was a straight girl, the, the assumption that, you know, that, um, because I had a background in computer science, um, I had to constantly bring it up because people would assume that as a woman and a designer, I had no idea how the computer worked. And I had to be oh like, God, yes. I'm all so much an AI, you know, like I'm actually, I'm actually really. And then of course the, the, the feedback that like, well, when you do that, then it decenters your visibility in this other way that makes people really, uh, you know, afraid of you. Um, oh, because yeah. they're talking down to creatives like artists and designers and now all of a sudden they have to be worried that you're going to call them on their shit like that all of that stuff is is when when I was coming up was invisible and also completely impossible to talk about and I think this is a question to you as a younger person who's coming up now um I feel like a lot of women my age you know who are like cresting 50 you know have been in successful and larger organizations um who didn't step out like I did really do suffer from this other kind of problem, which is that they've had to bury that stuff so hardcore. Oh, that yeah. If they bring it up now, they would just be like a rage machine. And so I, I find that a lot of times women that I would have looked to for mentorship in this specific area of my life, it was almost like we don't talk about this because if we talked about it, we would just like want to kill ourselves, you know? Oh, like, absolutely. I think um, that changed, you know? For myself, I know that like three years of, um, you know, existing in these systems in a ton of different, you know, forms on different projects, I've seen so often that like at the beginning you, you go, oh, I guess this is just how things are done. And if I say anything, I'm going to get in trouble. And then the next thing that happens is that you say, oh, no, if I, if I finally, you know, finally get the courage to say something, so you do and you're like, hey, I have a problem with this. And then someone tells you, no, it's not a problem. You are. Like, that's how we do things. And you're trying to cause trouble by talking about it. Why are you, you know, A, offended, B, taking this seriously, 
C, trying to change things, D, like whatever it is, right? All these different excuses. And then slowly over time, you end up getting beaten down where you realize it's so much effort to say something. And when I finally do, I'm not listened to. So I start to think, okay, well, it's probably not worth it to say anything. I just have to keep my head down and do the work because otherwise, yeah, I am going to lose it. And so years and years and years pass. And then eventually someone else, you know, who has the energy for it left, who goes, hey, this has to stop. And in that moment, you're like, thank God. I don't know what I could have done more, but I see now that something's been done. And all you can do is go like, thank you for this. I'm sorry that I was too tired to do it instead. Well, that, and that is really like this. This is something I think is also really endemic to this sort of like toxic culture of rushing and time being like this huge, you know, ticking clock on every development cycle. When I left AAA and moved into independent development, you know, it was still there. And then when I moved into my own company, I really tried to address it. But like, there is this kind of like overarching theme in conversations with with development publishers, partners, investors, you know, or if you're internal to a large organization about how there just simply isn't time. You know, we don't have time to waste on these kinds of issues or it's not really oh, yeah. like the HR process is complicated, but we just can't find the women or we can't find the black folks or we can't find the queer folks. You know, we oh, have yeah. like people or that we're like if you complain, yeah. if you say, hey, this person has been predatory, someone goes like, okay, but you know, they're, you know, they're trying their best and they're really good and we need to keep them. So if you could just like kind of keep quiet until the end of the project or something, or I'm sure that, you know, if we hear other stories of this, then, then we'll do something, you know, and what I, I, I talked about this in the games industry article, but what ends up happening at that point, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people actually, is that you start to, to realize your voice doesn't matter in this. You can't make a difference. And then the second phase of that is that you see that like the systems, the ideas, the people that you have tried to speak up against just keep thriving. And eventually you kind of go, wait, was I wrong? Right. Because I've tried to speak up against this, but people seem to embrace this. People seem to like this. It seems to be working. Maybe I was wrong. And that's kind of like self-gaslighting that we do to ourselves that yeah. just tires us out from from even joining the fight again until it gets more serious. Well, you know what's so interesting, I think, is that the pandemic has actually created this very real sense of time changing for people. You know, it is no longer the case that people feel the need to rush to action, mostly because everyone is exhausted by the constant fear of getting sick. The mismanagement of the pandemic here in the United States is obviously like a huge stressor for a lot of people. Um, And I think that what is so interesting in this moment, um, you know, as a Buddhist and as a person who's thought about, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, and like general systemic oppression for, for, for as long as I've chosen to be an adult, right? Like since baby, basically since like 16 or 17, is that right now we are all under the gun of this incredible amount of internal pressure about every decision that we make. Should I go to the grocery store? Should I take a trip? Should I get on an airplane? Should I wear a mask? Should I let my kid go back to school? Should I go back to school as a teacher? Which is one of the things that I'm struggling with right now. You know, like- It's a staggering weight. It's a a staggering weight to constantly have to think about and have this buzzing in the back of your head that is going like, something is wrong. Nothing is normal, but 
proceed as though it is. Well, and so this is the feeling, I think, of any person from a non-representative group, right? Who is in the, you know, in in the presence of a of a majority, any person in the minority has this this self-gaslighting tendency, this like this random low-level stress. And I think it's something that you can really point to when you're having these conversations with people now is like, you know how you feel about whether or not it's okay to go to the grocery store or to send someone out to order groceries for you and then bring them to your house. Like, you know how you're like really concerned about that. Now imagine that being like the fundamental basis of your life at work. You know, imagine that being the thread that has followed you through your entire career. I think there's a moment here for people to really understand that the sense of helplessness that they feel around political issues, the disease, um, and the systemic racism that's come to light in 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 their minds very recently, um, because somehow they managed to miss the Ferguson stuff or you know any of the yeah. things that happened since <laughs> the civil rights movement. Um, that this sudden awareness of it is crippling to them, and they feel really unable to handle it. And what I've been trying to do is say this feeling of helplessness in the face of a large problem is so endemic to our community. And the best thing you can do is be an ally and ask the people that have stepped out how you can help them, you know, step up in a way and say like, how can I, how can I make my publishing process anti-racist or how can I, how can I make my HR process anti-racist? And I think that's like, they can look to people like you who are doing this work and say, how can I, what, what are the lessons that you've learned in doing this work and how can I incorporate them? And so I want to give you that opportunity. Like, what do you think are some things that people can do right now when they're trying to be anti-racist, when they're trying to be, you know, innovative in terms of inclusion and diversity? Like, what are some things that you've learned in your trajectory so far? I think, you know, as, as a, as a thesis, I think it's, you know, get your, (laughs) Get some money and some time and dedicate it to the people who are doing the work. Because I think there's this idea that, like, you know, you can't just ask someone or you can't, I mean, and I get it, like, you can't just go up to someone and say, like, hey, can you educate me? But how about if you said, hey, your time is worth something. I'd like to hire you to be part of this project so that we can learn, so that I can learn from you and you can take the lead on this, you know? I think that we can start saying, hey, we want to understand where you're coming from right now and we want to pay you money for that. Because what what I keep seeing is people who go like, don't worry, we're going to keep our all-white team. And this is obviously speaking from largely narrative, but we're going to keep our all-white team. And then we are concerned that we've done a racist thing. So don't worry, when we're done with the script, we're going to give it to a sensitivity reader. Right. And to me, that process is kind of like what I see throughout the industry. It's, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And then we're going to ask someone to tell us we're okay. But what we need to do at the beginning of this is bake it into the process and into the system that we are building. We have to say on this team, do we have stakeholders and do we have people who are collaborating, who are responsible for you know, diversity and inclusion as part of our makeup. You know, if I, and again, from writing, the example that I can give is that there are so many times when I have been called in to come in and tell someone, hey, 
we're worried that this thing is racist. Is it? And a lot of times I come in and, you know, I'm a writer and a narrative designer, so I can say, okay, yes, you're right. These things are racist. You know, you have to either remove them or change them. And they go, okay, well, we can remove like two out of 10 of those things, but the rest of them are already committed. So unfortunately we're just gonna have to go with it. Yeah, and it's too late. Yeah, and I think to myself like, okay, what if at the beginning you brought in a writer of color or a queer writer or whatever you know marginalized group you are trying to represent and you said to them, hey, we wanna make a project that celebrates you. What have you not seen in, you know, in pop culture or in the media that you feel is missing? How, what, how can we bring you joy? Like that's something that for myself as, you know, CEO of Sweet Babies is something baked into our question is that how can we, instead of trying to mitigate pain all the time, how can we generate yeah. joy? Yeah. Right? Like that's what I'd rather ask. What brings you joy? How can we bring the feeling of representation to you as a person. And I, you know, I had an experience not too long ago where we brought a team of folks in, uh, some writers, um, some from outside of games to help us develop some characters. And what we did, we first said, okay, what are you missing when you play games that you think we could add into these characters? How can we represent you through these characters? How can you be a part of that? And the answers are so different and we learn so much more if we ask that question at the beginning than if we say, hey, can you tell us what to remove? You know, it gets to be additive. Like um, we were talking to this wonderful Indian woman who was, who was helping consult and she was just like, hey, I've noticed that um, when I see this kitchen, I don't think this character has a rolling pin. Oh yeah. And I said, oh yeah. Um, like, yeah, I think I, I said, I don't have a rolling pin. And she was like, yeah, in, in my kitchen, that's every day because so many of the breads that, that I make, yeah. we use a rolling pin. And if I see that, then I'm gonna know, oh, that's authentic. And similarly, um, I was speaking to a Cree woman who is also a writer outside games. And we asked like, you know, how do you feel about the representation of let's say like Cree or First Nations people? And what is a, like, what is a, a sign or like a, you know, some kind of feature that you'd like to see represented? And she says the thing that she wanted to see was beads. And the things that she always sees is beads. And we were like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Tell us more. And the example <laughs> that she gave was that like, whenever she sees like a lot of First Nation characters from that part of the world in Canada, um, she sees like ceremonial bead work as like, this is how you represent this person. But she's like living her life. She's not <laughs> always in ceremonial garb. Right. You know, she, she's not <laughs> just like accenting it with ceremonial stuff. like. That stuff is to signal to a white audience, hey, this person's First Nations. But for her, she was like, she had just recently commissioned um, beadwork of the Superman emblem because she's a comic book nerd. That's awesome. Yeah, and to me, I'm like, that is the stuff I want to see because truly what I think people don't realize, and there's a great article, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's about Maori representation. And it's that 
we keep trying to build representation for an audience who is not part of that representation. Yeah, it's like the unfamiliar has to be made familiar to someone who doesn't understand that it's being translated as opposed to the sort of feeling of being seen when something that's endemic to your culture, like the number of spices that would be in your kitchen or the ways in which uh, people would have like half finished beadwork around, for example, would be something that you would experience as, as a representative of that culture. It's a really fascinating thing. Yeah. And I think like, if I, I would love it, if, you know, I frankly don't care as much if I put, you know, if I'm writing a black character and she wraps her hair to go to sleep, I don't care if that moment is exciting to a non-black audience, but I do want, I do know that right. a black audience is going to go like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's something that I recognize. Yeah. And it's so easy to do, but I think that there's this huge fear and, you know, largely on, on the part of the of non-marginalized folks of going like, okay, well, if I represent, represent this, I have to like really sell how much I understand their experience. <laughs> I have to make sure that this like, let's say black character is the most black character I can create. And it's going to be based on my understanding of this. And I'm going to like really tell the story that like talks about how black they are. Right. Which in many like, cases, that can lead to like struggle porn and this idea that like the person has like the worst possible backstory, like, like all this other stuff. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did yeah. you pull every single indignity onto this character? Right. Like, can't they just, they Someone often only know the extreme, right? Because it's what's right. reached them. You know, if if I hear, like for myself, and that's the reason that I, I want to work with so many diverse teams is that like for myself, I don't know what is in the average kitchen in this part of India. Yeah. So I need that information and that information is going to enrich my project. But I have to first admit, I don't know it, not try to guess at it and then go, hey, what do you think? Can we do something with this and pay that person for their time and credit them for their time because they yeah. have helped that process. It's so, it's so funny. We're working on a project at Phenomena that is unannounced, so I can't talk about it yet. Um, but we're very excited about it because it has a fiction that will take the character all around the world. And the first sort of scenario that we worked on was actually in India. And one of our employees is of Indian descent was, was talking about the fact that like when people show India and in media, it's like, Oh, it's the Taj Mahal and the lady in a sari. <laughs> like, yeah. those yeah. Are like Those are like what white people think of as, as Indian quote unquote, when in fact it's a blending of all these cultures and depending on where you go, what season it is, what time of, year, you know, what festivals are going on, that people will wear very different things depending on what, what the weather is like, what's appropriate, yeah. you know, that women have many different outfits that they wear, mostly pants, actually with a, like with a tunic, not a sari, um, and that these things are not being shown. And it was like, yeah, like, you know what, just run with it, make this as authentic to your experience as possible. And then the, the excitement of being able to, as a team, really rally around the idea that we're going to learn so much about oh, yeah. cultures as we work on this title that the whole studio started thinking about like, let's have a lunch day where you can bring traditional food from your culture and talk about what it means to you. And like, these have been some of the most, um, I would say in terms of team bonding and like communication, some of the most tender and really lovely moments in the studio when someone can be like, you know, this is like what I ate in Venezuela before I had to leave. 
Um, and I miss it, you know, like I miss my grandmother's kitchen. I miss being able to go home and like to have that conversation with a whole team of people that are from all over the world is so, it's so enriching and so lovely that I find it almost sad that so many teams don't have that experience, you know? And I think that's something that we can celebrate and that does bring joy, but it also brings connection, you know? Yeah, I think I'm reading, um, I'm watching this bus, I'm guilty of watching this BuzzFeed video of like, um, the food at Indian McDonald's, like the different menus that they have. Uh, yeah. India. And I remember reading the comments and someone going like, wow, like I didn't think they had like burgers in India. And I was like, what? <laughs> like we've exhausted <laughs> this group of people so much that you're surprised that like this multinational corporation of people like, or sorry, like, yeah, this multinational corporation exists in this hugely populous country. And I think it's that idea that people go like, Oh, this is the other. It doesn't ever engage with the things that, like, we don't have any commonalities. And that's, you know, the food is an interesting example because it's where a lot of people, you know, find those commonalities and where a lot of people want to discuss them. But actually, one example of, I think, how the games industry and many other industries work when interfacing with um, other cultures and this idea of like representation for a white or, you know, a white straight says audience versus representation for that actual group is in um i was talking to my partner the other day and he's a chef and we were talking about like spice blends and you know using you know pre-packaged spices and the discussion we we're having like my mom is from jamaica she immigrated uh, when she was young we were talking about how like authentic recipes often do rely on things like you know here's a splash of soy sauce. Here's like some, this pre-mixed spice blend. Here's this. Yeah. But then when you see, you know, a often like a white person's blog about the food, it's yeah. like, here is how you make all of the spices. It's this idea that like everything exotic is like artisanal. It's, it's this yeah. takes hours, but it's a, it's a weekend dish. Not acknowledging that like in these actual countries, like if whether, whether it is Jamaica or whether it is India, people just living their lives and making food, you know, it's like, and, people, and a lot of the times I've, been, you know, I've encountered, you know, with some people have asked me like, Oh, you're, you're, your parents are Jamaican, you're from Jamaica. How, how do you make jerk seasoning? And I'm like, well, first you buy it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and this idea that like, that is less authentic than this food blog that goes like, here's how you make every bit of it. And obviously there are amazing chefs who will take the time, but we can't just say that every meal in every country is this labor intensive process, caring about, you know, every single spice and a recipe passed down for generations because it just exoticizes this thing and makes it so distant from us instead of acknowledging, no, we're just also making food. And sure, sometimes I get fancy, but other times I just grab this bottle of jerk sauce and I put it on my chicken. Yeah, no, I think it also denies the <clears throat> the fundamental impact of capitalism and colonialism on these cultures, right? They get invaded and then they get uh, sort of pushed into these situations where the traditional roles are no longer the, the way that they were. People don't have the kinds of time that they had when they were in an agrarian society. Like, you know, oh, yeah. and, we can't, we, but we keep having this idea that like, if we're going to write a like if we're going to write a an Indian character, we've got to make sure she's Indian in the way that we recognize. And we're going to put all of these details and put, yeah, as you said, every single bit of culture into that one character instead of just going like, who is she? 
And how does she represent authentically this culture? You know, what I think is so interesting, you know, for us right now is that I think um, we have the opportunity to sort of talk about these things. And specifically, I think I just keep coming back to this idea of time. It does take time. And you do have to engage from the very beginning. And you do need to be able to make these decisions before everything is modeled and rendered and animated and put into the game. And I think that this notion of urgency, crunch, um, the the paramount deadline culture that comes from a capitalist perspective um, about creating games or anything really in this culture versus our experience of time right now, like... The thing I keep coming back to in my mind is the is the flag in Mississippi that that you know there was this huge movement to change it and there was this one woman that was very active in creating an alternative flag which she called the hospitality flag which people were using and then at the point when everything crested and they demanded that this flag change she actually stepped away from the process and was like you know what my grandfather is associated with segregationist thought my name, my history is a pain point for many of the people that live in the state. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put my flag out there and I'm going to let you all make a decision in committee so that like they don't have a flag right now. And like the, 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 the bravery of the decision to go, you know what, we're not just going to try to put a bandaid on this and solve the problem right now. We're going to create a process we're going to talk about what that process means to us. And then we're going to build a flag that's representative of the population of our state, right? Like that is a cost. It's an extremely brave thing to say, we'd rather not have a flag and work together as a community to create a new one than to force through one made by a white lady who has all the right intentions, but has this problematic history. And I think that like in games, we have, um, we have, really, I think, done a lot of work to process the issues that we're facing much more even than film. And we're very, very progressive and reactive right now. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is can we take that next step and spend the money and the time ahead of time, right, on these next generation of games? I think that it's, for me, it's it's twofold. I think there's two different paths. There's the systemic path that's going to take a very long time. And then there's like immediate and direct action that we can take. So for myself, like, you know, building a long-term plan is that idea of how do we create a system that is going to nurture these people and support them and serve, you know, the groups that we have been ignoring. It's going to be inclusive. It's going to be kind. It's going to be empathetic. And it's going to, you know, help us all be and feel safer. I think that is something that takes a while to develop the same way that like when you're dismantling a system, it's going to take ages for you know some of these some of the companies that are being called out right now for these problems. It is going to take years for any of that stuff to show up to the public, you know, for us to see like oh now there has been change. But in the short term, I think it's always possible to say okay we can hire folks now. We have money now. We can start taking those actions to whether that's educate, whether that's to bring people into the team, whether that's to tell a different story, whether that's to get consultants, new writers, new devs. Um, there's, yeah, there's all those things that we can do in the short term as well. And that's, for me, where Sweet Baby tries to focus is like, we have our, our long-term goals and we, we know what those are. And, but we also go, okay, how fast can we get someone a credit on a game? Yeah. If we have a contract and if we say, hey, 
we are going to take this as a, as a team, but we want to bring in, you know, a, a junior writer who deserves a shot at it. We're going to, to do that now. And sometimes that's like, hey, we have this project for a month. So you'll only be working on it for two weeks, but we want to have your voice on it. Yeah. And I think those little bits are what a lot of people miss. People think, well, I can't imagine, you know, hiring someone full time for the next bit. That's going to cost, you know, $70,000. And then a lot of the time I'll think, okay, well, what can you get for $5,000? Right. If you stay for five, like if you have $5,000 right now, I guarantee that if, you know, you're going to get less for it, you're going to say, hey, these are the elements that I want your time for, but I'm going to pay you fairly. And here's the, here's that five grand. That still is a huge change. It helps your game become, you know, more representative, more authentic. It helps make it, make your team more diverse. And it also gives that person, you know, experience, a credit, money, and the chance to now take that and say, okay, thank you. I now have this. I'm going to move on to my next project. But I think just because it doesn't have to, like, we don't have to go all the way to, like, and that's why I say like group project is sometimes you just say, Hey, I, I have this much. Can you come and consult for a certain amount of time? And that's all I can afford. It's still better than going, okay, I'm just going to wait until two years from now when I can afford it because in two yeah. years, odds are the moment is over and you've forgotten. Well, I, I just want to say that I can't wait to hear the announcements about the new stuff that you all are up to. I know that you have a few things up your sleeve and I hope that by the time this podcast comes out, some of them have come to light. I also just want to say thank you for doing the work that you do and for sharing your perspective with us today. You know, a lot of what we're trying to do with the podcast here is present uh, perspectives from independent developers and new developers who are really coming up as opposed to leaning so much on the big names of the past. And, um, you know, my interviews here really are trying to focus on that. And I just, I just want to say that I think that it really is an amazing time to give people joy, to make them feel seen. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, if your question is about what can you do, you can always reach out to people like Kim, people that are already doing this work in the industry who are making an effort um, and, and support them in small and big ways uh, to, make, to make a difference now and in the future. And I just, I really, really appreciate your time, Kim. I'm so glad that you're doing what you do. And, you know, just I wish you all the best. And I can't wait to see what you all do in the future. Thanks so much. I, no, I, I look forward to, you know, talking about that stuff uh, when it happens. And uh, <laughs> when I can, I think, yeah, for the moment, we've got a couple, we've got a couple of fun games on the horizon. I'm, I'm excited about working with the team at co-op on Goodbye Volcano High. Um, and I'm cool excited game. about that. Yeah, it's going to be really, it's going to be really rad. Um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla I worked on, that's, that's, coming, that's coming out, you know, amid <laughs> a lot, amid a lot of discussions. But, you know, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good time and, and it's a good time to find ways to create more joy. It really is. Thank you so much for your time, Kim. Have a fantastic day. You too. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.